Tonight is a service of worship that's unlike any other in the church calendar. Tonight we gather not for Sunday celebration or Eucharistic feasting, but to contemplate, to look upon, to draw near our Lord Jesus as we remember the moment of his death. In a culture that fears death and avoids suffering as much as ours does, this is not an easy or a natural thing to do. It takes intention, courage, and perseverance, and I commend you for being here. Tonight's sermon is a meditation on the Good Friday scripture readings, and it's my prayer that as we reflect on these passages, God will prepare our hearts and our minds to draw near the suffering servant Jesus at the veneration of the cross later in tonight's service. Two of our faithful will carry in a wooden cross and lay it on the floor of our sanctuary here. And you'll be given opportunity to physically draw near to the symbol of suffering. You can come down from wherever you are and sit or kneel or even lay on the floor near the cross. And as we move our bodies close to the cross, this becomes a physical expression of our willingness to draw near to Jesus in our hearts and our minds. We indicate our desire to draw close to him, even as we understand that staying near him will involve our own suffering. When we draw near to Jesus in his moment of ultimate sacrifice and we see him on the receiving end of fatal brutality, shame, and desolation, we come face to face with things that we would rather not face. The prophet Isaiah, speaking prophetically of Jesus, describes him as one from whom men hide their faces. There are many reasons we hide our faces from the suffering servant. When we draw near to the suffering servant, we suffer. To look with compassion upon someone who is suffering is to suffer ourselves. And this is difficult to do. We may feel reluctant to draw near someone who is suffering profoundly, even when we love them profoundly. We might experience this reluctance as distraction or even boredom in a service like this one tonight. But if you, and if we were able to come close, it's even possible that we might experience to a greater or lesser degree reactions of loathing, fear, or shame. All three of them extremely uncomfortable things to experience. But eliciting feelings, good, bad, or indifferent, is not the goal of coming to the cross. Nearness to Christ is the goal. Our feelings may help or hinder that goal. Feelings or embarrassment about a lack of feelings can keep us away if we give them power to do so. But they don't have to be insurmountable obstacles. Tonight, we can let scripture guide us into a closer experience of being with Jesus, and we'll do it together as a body. When we draw near profound suffering, whether it is embodied in the suffering face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or embodied in the face of a refugee, or a loved one with a terminal illness, or a social pariah, we begin to share in that suffering as well. We look at verses 2, 3, and 4 
of Isaiah in chapter 53, Jesus looks initially like no one special. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground with no form or majesty, no beauty, nothing desirable about him. But more than that, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so far, this can describe any number of people who suffer intensely. Goes on to say, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, and by extension, those who suffer, those with whom he most strongly identifies, was seen as a person of little value. Suffering people do not seem to add much value to our lives. On the contrary, we fear them in part because of what they can take away from us. They can take our resources. They can take our time. They take our peace of mind. And at the end of verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So if human suffering is bad enough, it seems to take on a supernatural dimension. It's not just bad luck or the way of all flesh. It must be attributed to something more sinister. Perhaps the sufferer is responsible for his or her own suffering. Perhaps he or she has displeased the gods. Suffering people become living reminders of our own terrifying vulnerability. Poverty, pain, bereavement, abuse, mental illness, squalor, open sores, profound isolation, profound loneliness, addiction, disease. We can walk out these doors and see neighbors in Uptown in the thrall of all these types of suffering. Jesus' suffering was physical, emotional, social, spiritual. At the hands of others, he suffered beatings, abandonment, betrayal, indifference, deeply irrational hatred and persecution. He felt the shame of being an outcast. He felt the ridicule of weak and vicious bullies, the failure of institutional leadership. He knew spiritual desolation, uncertainty, rejection, nakedness, disfigurement, and he died a violent death. Any one of these tragedies could become true of us. And this mutual vulnerability to suffering can become a point of union with Christ and a point of solidarity with our suffering neighbors, or it can drive us to turn our face away. Attributing the suffering of others to moral failure or to the judgment of God allows us to keep our distance. But Jesus embodies the suffering we desperately hope to avoid in our own lives. Jesus also embodies the suffering that we are helpless to prevent or to remedy. The cry of the psalmist in Psalm 22 is, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
I often wonder if this was part of the Apostle Peter's story. Dear, passionate, impetuous Peter, just a few hours before the events of Good Friday had earnestly professed his readiness to die for Jesus. And in fact, Peter struck a mighty blow in defense of Jesus in the garden ambush. Peter's boasting wasn't empty. He was willing to risk his life to save Jesus from death. Peter always wanted to protect Jesus. And now he's failed. The moment of potential heroism has passed him by. And now that Jesus has been arrested, he has slipped beyond Peter's ability to help. Peter has to face a suffering he can no longer prevent. Now, watching Jesus suffer will involve facing into his own inadequacy and powerlessness. This is why feeling compassion and even acting on compassion for others is much more comfortable in the abstract and from a distance. Keeping a physical distance from suffering people helps us maintain the comforting illusion that we have agency to fix all kinds of problems. This is why it can be extremely difficult to be personally present to the material poor or the physically suffering with whom Jesus closely identified. If we are filled with compassion only in the abstract for the poor or the oppressed or the terminally ill, if we don't really know the the weight of the burdens that they carry day in and day out, we're free to imagine all sorts of ways we can solve problems. We can liberate the oppressed with our political reform. We can eliminate poverty with our donated monies. And we can achieve racial equality with well-planned community efforts. And all these works can be very, very good things to do. Any of these types of efforts may actually flesh out our solidarity with the suffering. But all these good works also have the potential to keep us smugly reliant in our own power, soothed by the illusion that the wrongs of this world can be righted apart from the cross. When I hand out money to the guys that meet me coming through the drive-thru at McDonald's, as I occasionally do, I generally drive away with a good feeling about myself. When I invite a hustler to join me for lunch, sitting and talking inside McDonald's, as I occasionally do, I generally walk away with a deeper understanding that if my four bucks are going to address poverty, they must be accompanied by prayer. Our good works are the furthest and most fragile extension of a life of prayer and trust in the Lord. Otherwise, like Peter, I fool myself into believing that others need me to lead them out of or away from suffering when in reality they need Jesus to take their sufferings into himself, lead them to and through the cross and into resurrection. My role is to accept my helplessness so that I can truly draw near and stay near Jesus and those who suffer. Now, 
know, at first, after that incident in the garden, Peter still wants to stay near Jesus, and so he follows him to the high priest's house. But then an even deeper weakness in him is revealed. He denies knowing Jesus, he hears the rooster crow, and he reaches his limit. He loves Jesus, but now facing Jesus means reckoning with his own guilt and shame and sin. It's too much. And so Peter is missing at the foot of the cross. It's so tragic and so ironic that we let shame and guilt keep us from from drawing near to Jesus at the cross. The cross is the very instrument of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. The suffering of Christ for our sins was a precious and intimate act of devotion. But in order to draw near and abide with Christ, we must humbly accept our own culpability in his death. We must gain courage from his love and his invitation to forgiveness, or we will not draw near. The prophet Isaiah tells us, Jesus is bearing our griefs at the cross. He is carrying our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Given that this is so, given the pain and humility required to draw near the suffering servant, why should we come? How can we come? How can we find courage and hope to draw near to Jesus as he suffers on the cross? If all we found at the cross was suffering and vulnerability, I don't know that we could ever find courage and hope enough to draw near. Surely we have enough suffering each of us in our own lives, that we don't need to draw near the suffering of others, be they family members, neighbors, or Jesus himself. Now, if we are particularly tenderhearted and holy, perhaps our love for Jesus Christ and a simple desire to be near him while he suffers may be enough to entice us to come near. In tonight's gospel passage, we see John, the youngest of the disciples, and at least three women, each named Mary, who seemed to be compelled by love alone to stay beside Jesus to the very last. The suffering that they themselves fear, the suffering that they are helpless to prevent, the suffering that they themselves colluded in, all that is not enough to make them turn their faces away from Jesus at this darkest hour. But not all of us are Mary or John. I love that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of them high-status men who kept their discipleship a secret during Jesus' life, find the courage to out themselves only after Jesus' death. I love that they are part of this gospel story. But in any case, if you and I are hanging back a little, wanting and not wanting to draw near Let us arm ourselves with courage and hope drawn from gospel truth. At the cross, we find a boundless paradox. At the point of the deepest, 
darkest, most dreadful and unjust suffering the world has ever seen, we find not a black hole of misery and condemnation, not just that, but a wellspring of glory and light. It is here at the foot of the cross that we find victory, redemption, peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, salvation, rescue, healing. Crippling weakness here achieves eternal victory. Painful wounds become the source of profound healing. The object of wrath becomes the fountainhead of mercy and forgiveness. Now, in the Protestant churches I grew up in, I never saw crucifixes. Empty crosses, yes, but no depictions of Christ on the cross. And I don't remember thinking much about this one way or another. I don't remember asking about it. But I do remember at one point, my mom volunteered an explanation. She said that we displayed only empty crosses because of the resurrection. We worship a risen Savior, not a dead God. And that's certainly true. Christians worship the crucified and risen Son of God. The cross is no longer full of Christ. (laughs) However, as an explanation of the meaning and purpose of crucifixes in worship, it fell short. And it actually adversely affected my theology of suffering and even my understanding of the gospel. What my mother didn't realize was that from very early on, the ancient church interpreted the image of Jesus hanging on the cross primarily as an image of victory, a triumphant image. Vulnerable? Yes. Broken? Yes. Suffering? Yes. But simultaneously, triumphant. Christ reigns from the cross in victory and glory. The gore, the mutilation, the nakedness, the helplessness, all the horror of the cross was real. But it also masked or veiled another and deeper reality that was unfolding there. There is an incredibly powerful moment in the 2004 film Passion of the Christ that speaks to this. Jesus, beaten and bloodied, is literally staggering under the weight of the cross that he carries. He stumbles and falls hard, and his mother Mary runs to him. And Jesus is in such pain, he's lost so much blood that he seems barely able to put words together. But he looks at Mary and says, Mother, I am making all things new. Jesus' suffering is not in vain. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. He is laboring on the cross for us like a woman labors in childbirth. And just as when the baby emerges red and slippery with blood and gook from its mother's womb, and there's a tension-filled moment of silence following that moment of delivery, this is like the dreadful silence of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. It's just like that. It's a deathly quiet before the roar of joy at the Easter acclamation of life, abundant life made available at last to you and me. Last night, 
On Monday, Thursday, Christ offered us the bread that satisfies and the cleansing that transforms. And at that time, the disciples did not know, they, they could not know how this would be made possible during this darkest hour. John, the gospel writer, tells us, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. How could this be? Now, the ancients were more familiar with dead bodies than we generally are. They knew as well as we do that dead bodies don't bleed. And John goes on to assure us, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The dead body of the Paschal sacrifice is unlike any other. From the still, broken, dead body of our Savior, the blood of life and the water of purity begin to flow the blood for our nourishment, the water for our cleansing, and from the tragedy of his death flows a literal fountain of life for us. This is why we are called to come near the suffering servant. From this place of suffering issues all we need to thrive and be strong and be satisfied. From Isaiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is that moment at which the suffering servant is finally able to say, it is finished. We turn our face away from him at the moment he made it so that the father would never, ever, ever have to turn his face away from us. This is where he applied the words and the truths of Psalm 22 to us. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. We are all invited to draw as near to Jesus as we dare. I know this is kind of an intense night. These are intense spiritual realities we've been contemplating. But you don't have to have big, intense feelings or a big, intense experience in order to participate and receive from the Lord. 
The veneration of the cross is an invitation to draw near, and drawing near does not carry any special requirements apart from simply the willingness to come. Come as you are. Jesus is uniquely and especially equipped to meet you however you are tonight. You can come and say anything you want to Jesus tonight, and it doesn't have to be deep, and it doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, simple can be really good. Just a moment at the cross is enough time to say, I need you. Or I'm angry. Or lonely. Or scared. It's enough to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Or I feel empty, Jesus. I love you. You can come and you can say please. You can say thank you. Whatever the condition of your soul tonight, the invitation is the same. Come and be near him. Draw near the suffering servant and receive life from him. Here at the foot of the cross, we see this is Christ's body broken for us. There's Christ's blood spilled for us. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.